Good afternoon or good morning as the case might be and welcome. My name is David Epstein. I teach at the University of Richmond Law School and this semester I have the pleasure and honor of serving as the visiting scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. One of the many benefits of that position is that from time to time it gives me the opportunity to talk with some of the leading figures in the bankruptcy area of issues of current interest and importance. Today I'll be talking with Professor Douglas Baird about the Supreme Court's uh, case in, uh, in the Radlax case, a case that will be argued to the court later this month, I think on Monday the uh, 23rd. Douglas is, as I mentioned, as everybody in the bankruptcy world knows, a law professor at the University of Chicago where previously he served as dean. Uh, Douglas is one of those professors who literally seems to be writing with both hands. Uh, is the author of numerous law review articles, one of the widely adopted case books that's used by law students studying bankruptcy law as well as a student text. Uh, Professor Baird, along with his co-author and soon-to-be colleague, I guess, Professor Ed Morrison, were the recent winners of the American Bankruptcy Institute's second annual Judge Wesley Steen Law Review Writing Prize for their article Dodd-Frank for Bankruptcy Lawyers, which appears in the winter edition of the uh, ABI, and Douglas uh, was one of the uh, writers of an amicus brief, which is one of the amicus briefs that has been submitted in the Radlax case. Uh, as anyone who is taking the time to listen to this podcast knows, at issue in the Radlax case is credit bidding in a Chapter 11 plan. And of course, anyone taking the time to listen to this podcast knows that Section 363K gives a secured creditor the right to credit bid at a 363 sale. But even then, the right is not absolute. It's a right to credit bid at a 363 sale unless the court for cause orders otherwise. Now, this Radlax case did not involve a 363 sale, but rather a plan that provided for a sale without credit bidding. Because the plan in Radlax did not receive the requisite majorities from all impaired classes, the plan proponent asked the court to confirm the plan pursuant to 1129B of the Bankruptcy Code, what people in the bankruptcy world uh, euphemistically referred to as cram down provisions. The bankruptcy court denied confirmation on direct appeal to the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit affirmed notwithstanding contrary case law in the other circuits. Given this conflict among the circuits, the Supreme Court decided to take this case. Numerous groups, including the Solicitor General, uh, filed an amicus brief, and I'm grateful that we have Douglas to help us understand what this is all about. Douglas, by way of, of sort of getting us started, could you briefly summarize uh, 
the arguments that are made in the uh, scholars brief that you were a part of that was filed as an amicus brief in this case? So the, the essential argument um, says before we get to the specific items in 1129B, we can just look at the fair and equitable language. And the fair and equitable language um, stands alone, has to be complied with independently of any of the specific requirements in 1129B. And as we know from Case versus Los Angeles Lumber Products, fair and equitable means absolute priority. <clears throat> and our argument is essentially that you a plan that doesn't give the secured creditor right to credit bid um, is, is not a plan really in keeping with the spirit of the absolute priority rule. Um, in other words, um, one way to look at our argument, um, which I don't claim to be the only way that you can look at this case, but I think it's an important way, is, is to say that you don't need to reach textualist arguments or get hung up on what it means to say that a plan can be Romanet 1, Romanet 2, or Romanet 3 before you even get there, since it says um, for a plan to be fair and equitable, it includes these requirements. Well, in addition to that, fair and equitable means that any plan has to comply with absolute priority before you reach any of these details. And the argument is you take away a right to credit bid without cause. Um, you've taken away something from a senior creditor that's inconsistent with the idea of absolute priority. So I take it a critical word then uh, from your perspective, from the perspective advocated uh, in that amicus brief is that verb includes. Yes. Uh, in B2, uh, and, it, and I take it it's long been recognized or accepted that uh, what follows in A, B, and C is not intended to be an exclusive ex explanation uh, of the standards for fair and equitable uh, because of the choice of the verb includes. Right. That's the, that's the gist of the argument. But another way of looking at what we've said is that you can be as strict a textualist as you want with respect to Romanet 1, Romanet 2, Romanet 3, and you still have to contend with the language of fair and equitable, which, as we know, Justice Douglas said, means absolute priority. It's a term of art. Well, while I have uh, not had the honor of, of, of arguing a case to the Supreme Court, uh, my understanding of Supreme Court arguments is that oftentimes uh, the advocates have limited control uh, over the conversation and that the conversation is, is shaped very much by the, the questions uh, that the judges, that the justices uh, would ask. If I could ask you to put on the hat or the robe of a Supreme Court justice and the petitioner is about to begin his argument in this case. Uh, as a Supreme Court Justice, Douglas, what would you want to hear from the petitioner? Uh, what is it that you think that, or not that the actual, but as a justice, what would you ask the petitioner about? Well, again, you'll promise to ask me the same question for the respondent, too. I think that, that's only fair. But, uh, no, I would the, the thing that would put the fear of God into me if I were arguing in front of the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court would just hone in over and over again on this idea of absolute priority or rephrased um, as indubitable equivalence. In other words, I would look you straight in the eye and I'd say, look, I've got a choice. You know, again, no one is arguing in this case that the collateral is worth more than what the secured creditor is owed. And 
I understand absolute priority means that you as a secured creditor are entitled to everything. Or to put it differently, I want to give you the following choice. You can get either the collateral or as much cash as a third party is willing to bid for it, your choice. Or you can just take as much cash as a third party is willing to give you. Now, are those two choices the same? Behind door number one, you get either the collateral or the amount of cash someone's willing to pay. Behind door number two is just the amount of cash someone's willing to pay. Are those two things the same? Um, And if your answer to me is that they're exactly the same, then I don't understand. And if you tell me that they're different, then aren't you conceding your case? They're not the indubitable equivalent. So that if the petitioner, uh, now I guess if, if I can get you to wear still a different hat, uh, did you think it would be a tactical mistake for the petitioner to emphasize the conjunction or in 1129B, that that's not where you think the court is likely to focus? Oh, no, I think it's perfectly possible they'll focus there. I, I, think it's, I think there are two nightmare scenarios, and the nightmare scenario for the petitioner is they won't focus on the language at all. They won't focus or and all. They'll simply focus on absolute priority, and they'll say, look, didn't we say in two, two or three North LaSalle that we meant top dollar? How is an auction that takes away, essentially, one of the bidders an auction that gives you top dollar? Um, and that's the nightmare for the, the petitioner. Now, the nightmare for the respondent is to do exactly what you suggest, which is to say, look, it says Romanet 1 is stream of payments and a lien. Romanet 2 is sale with credit bidding. And Romanet 3 is or um, the indubitable equivalent. Now, if you're going to tell me that a sale with – what's a sale with – credit bidding, how could it have an indubitable equivalent unless it's something other than that? And you just hit that literal language over and over and over again. And uh, I can imagine a, a Justice Scalia who basically says, with respect to other cases we both know, will say, look, I don't really think there's any grand policy. I don't think there's any natural right here. You know, I'm just supposed to interpret the language as written. And if I see something that says A, B or C, or in this case, Romanet 1, Romanet 2, or Romanet 3, that it has to be, Counselor, that you can tell me what is in Romanet 3 that is different from Romanet 2. And as I understand your argument, you're insisting that you can't have something that's indubitable equivalent unless it doesn't include credit bidding. Well, I don't get that. There has to be something else, other than I would, otherwise the section would be meaningless. I mean, that's the... That's the, that's the road that you can get on, and you can have a justice who's simply locked in that point of view and not have any shaking it. And, and that, I think, is a, is a potential avenue here. And, and I should just point out, just for people who don't think credit bidding is that important or think that what they can do in their dip financing order is have a provision that says that you can't credit bid. Um, it's a big issue because, remember, if all of a sudden you can have indubitable equivalent as an alternative to Romanet 2, then you can also have indubitable equivalent as an alternative to Romanet 1, which means you don't have to have a plan in which you as a secured creditor necessarily get a lien. Um, There's a very important case um, that also in the Seventh Circuit decided the way it was because of Radlex, in which you have a creditor who takes the 1111B election, and the debtor proposes a plan in which the debtor says, well, actually, what I'll do is I will give you, instead of a lien and a note that is worth the amount that the 
bankruptcy judge said, what I will do is I will give you a treasury bill that is worth what the bankruptcy judge said, and I'll take the property free and clear of liens. And the question is, is that the indubitable equivalent? And one way of looking at that, if Radlex is reversed, is to say, well, wait a second, a treasury bill worth $15 million that sells for $15 million is the indubitable equivalent of a note that the bankruptcy judge says is worth $15 million that's secured by a piece of property worth $15 million. And that's the kind of thing that can happen. We're used to living in a world where we think that when you're crammed down and you're a secured creditor, you're going to get a note and a lien. That just ain't going to be so um, if you have an opinion that's written the way potentially Radlax could be written. To the extent that the majority opinion or, or any of the opinions uh, emphasize the statutory language then, I take it from your comments that you think that to the extent that, that a, a justice is inclined to look at the statutory language, he or she is more likely to look at the language of what is or isn't in 1129 as opposed to comparing 1129 with 363K. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's 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 right. I, I, again, it's you know, it, it's hard to, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to sort of put myself in a in a, in a, in, a, in a different world. I, I think actually a very strong argument that petitioners have um, is the fact that, as you emphasize, that um, you don't have an absolute right to credit bid even under 363K. Um, you know, you, you know, it can the judge can um, deny it for cause, um, and. And so, and that's also folded into 1129B. And so, you never have a world where there's an absolute right to credit bid. So you know there's a little bit of shakiness there, um, no matter what happens. But the the strong argument, and I, I think that the the highest likelihood event in which the petitioners will be prevail is in which the the court simply focuses narrowly on one, two, and three in the word or and basically says, look, the word or has to mean something, and if it means something, it means you can have a sale, and there doesn't have to be a credit bid. And I couple to this the argument that says, and don't tell me there always has to be a credit bid, because we know even under 363K, there doesn't always have to be a credit bid, because the court for cause can order otherwise. Uh, how much weight do you think is likely to be given to the respondent's argument that we've always had credit bidding and that there's nothing in the legislative history to indicate that Congress intended to affect a change from prior practices? Oh, I think um, it is true that we've always had credit bidding. I think arguments about the legislative history are, are going to go nowhere with this court. But, but uh, there is something to be said for uh, we have to recognize past practice. I think when you look at past practice, um, credit bidding has been something that, for example, the court during the 1930s was was it, an important feature of, of protections for secured creditors. But I think once once the Supreme Court is in that mode, it's already going to be in the mode of two or three North LaSalle and paying top dollar in the mode of absolute priority. And you'll have other provisions that are window dressing. And again, the idea that fair and equitable has this long-established currency, and we'll tie all these things together. But if you're sort of asking, what's the spark that's going to get the judges thinking? It's not going to be something like legislative history. It's going to be an initial blink intuition about whether or not this is a statutory interpretation case, on the other hand, where 
you know, we simply have to call the balls and strikes and read the words of the language as written, or whether it's going to be an absolute priority case on the other. And interestingly enough, the way in which they make their choice here really may tell us a lot about what happens in bankruptcy in the future. Not so much because of credit bidding per se, but rather, um, do we see a full-throated commitment to absolute priority, or do we see... Um, a full-throated commitment to, you know, reading the language literally. And, of course, I'm not always sure what reading the language literally will get you. And sometimes, as we know, especially after 2005, it gets us into a lot of trouble. But those are the, that's, the, that's the fork in the road where I see ourselves at the moment. Well, speaking about sparks, in your, that, that might affect the direction the court goes with respect to not just this bankruptcy case, but other bankruptcy-based cases, in, in your amicus brief, uh, in, and I use the term your to describe a, the amicus brief that you are a part of, in, in your amicus brief, uh, there's a Butner argument. Uh, do you see Butner as an important part of the resolution of this question? Well, I, again, I think Butner, uh, Butner, of course, is one of my favorite cases, but, but also I think Butner is. Well, I realize that you're more likely to find the Butner connection than most. Yeah, I, I basically see Butner everywhere. But 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 the 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 I think the the essentially what we're doing is we're talking about what is the right of the secured creditor that we're protecting. Um, we need to translate it to the bankruptcy form and, and everything else. But in a world where we're selling the collateral then explain to me why it is we're departing from the non-bankruptcy baseline, why it is that we're giving the secured creditor something other than the property. Um, again, a big problem for the petitioners in this case is nobody is making the argument that the asset is really worth more than what the secured creditor is owed. And a question you can ask is say, wait a second, if the asset here is not worth more than the secured creditor is owed, then what exactly are we doing? How exactly is this departure from this long-established bankruptcy practice, this long-established of a right that exists outside of bankruptcy, what bankruptcy policy goal is that vindicating? And if you can't identify that kind of goal, then everything we know about bankruptcy says that, um, that, that we, shouldn't, we shouldn't allow it. Douglas, I was surprised that not only did the Solicitor General file an amicus brief, but asked for and apparently has received argument time. Uh, surprised? Uh, well, you know, the SG weighed in in dollars. Uh, the, the government is a creditor. Uh, it is an important case. I'm a little bit surprised. I, I, I do, I do um, I think it's um, a great strategic move on, on the part of the respondents to be open, oh, sure. to the, open the, to the idea of having the Solicitor General argue. Whenever you get the Solicitor General to argue on your side, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, both because they're very good oral advocates, and also because um, they they carry a lot of credibility um, in, in in front of in front of the court. So uh, I'm you know I wouldn't say I'm, I'm I'm surprised, but but I'm not I'm certainly not not shocked. Any sense as to what the likely outcome is going to be? No, I I again I've I've um, you know I've I've, I've talked to, I I think it's. Um, uh, it would not surprise me if it were not close, uh, in, in part because sometimes with these bankruptcy cases, you and I care passionately about it, but, but uh, the court may not. And it would not surprise me that one justice gets a very, very strong view about the case and the, 
and that carries other people who aren't sort of caught up in the in the enthusiasm. So I, I think almost any any outcome is is possible. I, I, w- I was really quite surprised to see the outcome of the Philadelphia news case. I mean, I, I really thought that um, Judge Ambrose would have carried his colleagues, um, and I mean, he wrote a cogent opinion, and and he. Um, is someone whose views on bankruptcy law are, are obviously widely widely respected, and if you know he doesn't carry the Third Circuit, then I don't think you can be confident that that his argument is going to carry the entire Supreme Court. I'm not taking anything away from Judge Ambrose, but it's just it's just not 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 clear. Um, one thing I'd, I'd like to add, just to get back, please. I was about to add, suggest that you know if, if there's anything that I have not asked that you wish I would have asked or any other. Uh, insights that, that you'd like to to provide, please. Now's the time. Yeah, I'm not sure I have other other insights, but uh, but the, the 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 thing that I sometimes see that I see in the petitioner's brief and the arguments I sometimes see and and the intuition that that it sounds logical, but I think people should think carefully about it. Is people say, wait a second, credit bidding is bad because it chills other people from bidding, um, and the argument goes something like this: I'm a secured creditor, I'm owed 100, and I basically say, guess what? I'm not going to let other people buy this property for less. I would rather just take it, take the property myself rather than let other people bid on it. They say, well, you know, because that's the effect of credit bidding, it's going to chill people from coming in and bidding, implicitly bidding less than what the secured creditor is owed. Uh, and they stop and think that's an argument. I think the response to that is to say, well, so what? You know, of course, if I'm if I bid a hundred, that's going to chill people from spending any time or energy to bid fifty or sixty or seventy. But the reality is, I am owed all the proceeds of the sale, and if I am dumb enough as a secured creditor to prefer the asset to fifty or sixty million dollars in cash, well, that's my problem. It's not one, not anybody else's problem. It doesn't interfere with the operation of the bankruptcy system. Remember, one of the bad things about 363 sales that you know you and I worry about is that you have a 363 sale and then the sale takes place, the secured creditor walks off with the assets, and no one's around to pay for the reorganization. If you have a sale under 1129, remember you can't approve a sale under 1129 unless the cash is on hand to approve the administrative expenses. That's one of the right. protections that's that's built in there, and so. We know the cash is going to be there under 1129 to pay all the administrative expenses. Otherwise, you can't go forward with this plan. And we know that the asset is not worth enough to pay the secured creditor in full. And so the question is, who is it that we're trying to protect by taking away from the secured creditor the right to credit bid? Uh, Again, if you really adhere to the principle of absolute priority, you would say, well, there isn't anybody else there. Now, of course, if you don't adhere to the principle of absolute priority, then I can see it. But again, it's a little hard, given the rhetoric of the Supreme Court in cases like two or three in North LaSalle, to retreat from, from absolute priority. But this just leads me back to my basic intuition, which is there are two paths the Supreme Court can go and reach dramatically different conclusions. One path is a full-throated embrace of absolute priority. Um, which means the respondents will win very easily. The other is a full-throated embrace of a literal interpretation of the bankruptcy code, and the use of the word or, and the or needs to mean something, 
Um, Romanet three needs to mean something, and that's how they would find in favor of the um, petitioners. Douglas, thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with us about the Radlax case. Your comments would be very helpful to the attorneys for the petitioner and respondent if they were listening, uh, but regardless, it's going to be very helpful to the rest of us in, in sort of understanding what's argued to the court on the 23rd and what the court ultimately decides. Thanks again for making this time for us. Oh, David, it's always a pleasure.